here's the thing. I I've noticed that um, you tend to monopolize conversations. I do? Well, yeah. The thing is, people don't really like it when someone runs on uh, about something that they're not particularly interested in. It can come off as, uh, well, babbling. Babbling? Oh, you mean glossolalia, from the Greek meaning to speak with tongues. You know, it's interesting how that comes about. Stop. See, you're doing it right now. I, I, I didn't ask for an explanation about speech disorders. You understand? It's like Ruth Ann didn't ask about the, the taxonomy of, uh, of tubers, and, and Maggie didn't ask about turbine engines. I just think that people don't always want to know that stuff, you know? Not all at once, anyway. You could possibly get better results if you, you just you know, turn off the, the spigot a bit, you know? Lee, whenever I was in high school, I would always watch Saturday Night Live on Saturday. Like, I was not going to any parties. I was not doing any of that fun <laughs> things. I was there at 10.30 Central Time watching Saturday Night Live. And everyone else watched it, like, on Sunday on Hulu, like a normal individual. <laughs> and on Monday, I would show up to class. Um, first period was uh, English with Ms. McFarlane that we had on for a guest. Mm, previous guest. And what happened was that uh, I would always inundate people with what had <laughs> happened on Saturday Night Live. I was more excited about telling them about Saturday Night Live than they were about hearing me yeah. talk about <laughs> SNL. <laughs> I always joke about that because that, that was like something I was like really passionate about. So I was always rattling on and on about the weekend update jokes. Sometimes I would perform them for them. And then <laughs> I would just like really get into it. But I can't imagine that that was like a fun ordeal for them. <laughs> Maybe at least I would I'd say at least a little more fun than uh what is it the taxonomy of tubers that he says here? Uh I guess <laughs> I guess to each their own like maybe you're into that. But who is it that said your favorite SNL cast is like the the people who were on SNL when you were in high school? I remember hearing that. I don't know if you were telling oh, me that or that was yeah, that was spoken by Lorne Michaels, actually, the creator of SNL. Oh, okay. Yeah, he, he had a theory that, like, whatever cast that you had in high school was actually the funniest. That, that was actually really interesting to me because when I heard that at the time, I didn't believe him because I thought, like, no, like, I don't think that, like, Bill Hader or Andy Samberg or Christian Wig or Jason Sudeikis, uh, Fred Armisen, like, I didn't think that they had, like, it would ever have as much success as like Will Ferrell or Adam Sandler, those uh, really big people from the 90s. Yeah. But it turns out that they did. They totally <laughs> did. I was proven wrong. Yeah. And I didn't think they would be my favorite, but then like a couple years passed and I realized, I was like, wait, no, that's actually like such a golden era. I think it's so good. So I'm playing <laughs> right into his hand. Yeah, yeah. But I truly do think, like that one had like such a murderous row of writers. It had um, Simon Rich. It had John Mulaney. Yeah. It had Bill Hader still in the cast. It had Seth Meyers helming the boat. It was, in my opinion, the best cast ever. <laughs> but still. Yeah. Well, hey, we're unfortunately not here to talk about uh, Saturday Night Live. Fortunately, we are here to talk about Northern Exposure. Well, what is Northern Exposure? The 1990s CBS TV series. This is the Northern Overexposure podcast. My name is Lee, and I'm always joined by my co-host, Charles. 
Yeah, this is my first time seeing Northern Exposure. Every single time, it's a new experience for me. Lee has seen it before, so he can kind of guide me along with this. And one of the interesting things that we like to do here on Northern Overexposure is that we like to bring somebody that has not seen the show. We like to put them into the episode, get their thoughts about the episode, and then talk a little bit more about it. But before we get there, Lee, who directed today's episode? Okay, jumping right into it. This is um, an episode called A Bolt from the Blue, Season 5, Episode 14. It was directed by Michael Lang, who has directed the episodes Cottage for Uncle Manny and in this season, A Cup of Joe. The writer for this episode, Jeff Melvoin, who has written a lot of Northern Exposure. Actually, at this point, um, I think he's just one of the one of the writers that has written kind of a majority of episodes. I mean, we have like Robin Green, um, Mitchell Burgess, Diane Frolov, Andrew Schneider. Those names keep popping up. But Jeff Melvoin now, uh, just to list his credits, A River Doesn't Run Through It, Altered Egos, Cottage for Uncle Manny, which of course Michael Lang uh, directed. So they've worked together, I guess, in that way. Um, also, the doubleheader Love's Labor Mislaid and Ill Wind in season four, Crime and Punishment, Democracy in America and Dateline Sicily was the first episode for Northern Exposure that Jeff Malvoin wrote. Uh, lastly, the air date, January 24th, 1994. That's really interesting. I, I think that this one is actually a pretty great episode, in my opinion. I think it's got some classic Northern Exposure stuff into it. And I really wish we would have timed this. There's no way we would have known. But I wish we would have timed this with actual President's Day or July yeah. 4th, one of the two. You know, it's funny. Um, so we haven't gotten to it yet, but President's Day uh, is sort of a big part of this episode. Like there's a lot of preparations for a celebration for President's Day in this episode. But this episode, as I just said, the air date, January 24th, 1994, predates President's Day in 94. So it's not even airing on President's Day or around President's Day. I feel like it's uh, um, a couple of weeks. When is President's Day? Oh, this I looked this up whenever, <laughs> whenever I was taking notes. <laughs> but the calendar for 1994 is exactly the same as the calendar for this year, 2022. Really? Yeah. Calendars will repeat every like seven or 11 years. It's like kind of changes up because of the leap year. But, you know, there are like, for instance... Uh, when we're recording, which is crazy, it's Friday. <laughs> this episode's supposed to come out uh, Sunday night, but we'll see. We'll see if, <laughs> if that happens. <laughs> but it's Friday the fourth, uh, Friday March fourth, and um, if you go back to '94 and you go to March fourth, it will have fallen on a Friday as well. So, like all of the day and dates are the same in that year. So President's Day, if I'm looking at the calendar here, is supposed to be um, well, we've already passed it, right? That was. February 21st, and the air date of um, this episode, as I said, January 24th, so a month before President's Day. So I don't know if it was just like they they were planning to air it um, around President's Day, but something happened in the scheduling. But uh, but yeah, it's definitely, uh, it's close, but it's, it's uh, not on point, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I guess we can just start talking about some President's Day trivia before I really get into the episode <laughs> okay. right there, since we brought it up. There is actually a reason that it's on Monday. It's um, it's an actual act. It's called the Uniform Monday Holiday. Mm. It was passed in June 28th, 1968 from Congress, and it permanently moved three federal holidays in the United States to Monday 
hmm. Washington's birthday, Memorial Day, and Labor Day. So that is why it always falls on a Monday right there. And what I found really interesting about President's Day is uh, the number of cells that you have, like mattress cells. Oh, yeah, it's true. <laughs> yeah. And doesn't Chris, Chris, yeah, what does he say? Yeah, he muses about that. He's like, surely there's got to be like more to this holiday than you know, <laughs> consumerism and everything like that. And I was actually looking into it. I was like, yeah, is there any like specific reason why? But then... I realized uh, when I read further down, it said that until the late 1980s, corporate businesses generally closed on this day, which was similar to present corporate practice on Memorial Day or Christmas Day. Mm -hmm. However, whenever it got moved to the third Monday, most businesses remained open. So the idea is that like federal governments close on Monday, but all the, you know, other shops that aren't in the government are open. So like you got a free day why not just go out and go shopping? And that's yeah. why there's a lot of sales. There you go. Yeah, makes sense, I guess. You know, any sort of holiday that, uh, that <laughs> you know, capitalism, you know, any sort of holiday that you have off, you can try to make a lot of money on that, I guess. Interesting. Um, well, okay, maybe let's hop into um, <laughs> the plot line here. Should we start with the, with the President's Day stuff with Maurice? Or should we save that? Why don't we start with the very first scene? Yeah. That's always a good way to do it. Um, I, I can set us up here. So it's uh, actually a pretty cool shot when we start off. It's a very long, I think it's a dolly shot. And we're following like we're in, um, out in nature. Joel is walking alongside some police officers and we're following them on this long walk. Like they just hopped out of a car or something and they're kind of crossing a large distance. And the first line of dialogue is something like, um, Ranger Burns has taken the layoff real hard. So we understand quickly the exposition. Ranger Burns, if you remember, um, appeared in the season one finale, Aurora Borealis. However, it was a different actor, same character, this um, forest ranger who lives and works in at the top of this you know, watchtower, making sure that there are no brush fires or forest fires breaking out, like keeping a watch for forest fires, and he's uh, characterized in that in that first appearance as incredibly lonely and seeking, you know, any sort of social interact. Like I think Joel has to visit him. Something about panic attacks he keeps having. So, but when Joel goes there in that in that first appearance, um, you know, Joel feels almost trapped with them. This guy's like, you know, kind of latching onto any sort of social interaction he can find. Yeah, it's a great opening right there. And it leads to Joel having to do some hostage negotiation right there because Ranger Burns feels like he's really only comfortable with the town doctor in order to be sort of like a middleman in order to negotiate what's going on. Yeah, I'm actually surprised that Joel agreed to do this. This doesn't seem like, I don't know, I'm just remembering that time when Ruth Ann asked if Joel would want to be part of the um, volunteer firefighting team that Sicily has. And he flat out said no. But um, <laughs> I guess, you know, he, he says this a couple times later in the episode, but as a doctor, I guess, as Ranger Burns's, um, you know, doctor, he maybe is looking out for the well-being of his patient. So I guess under that circumstance, he would agree to be, because he's wearing a bulletproof vest in this scene. <laughs> I, I think it's great. I think it's so <laughs> funny and uh, just, I'm not saying it's fitting, but 
<laughs> I think it's really dynamic to see Joel be in this environment. Yeah. Like, first of all, like the, the episode begins at like such a great pace. You're like, what is going on? Like what? <laughs> this is exciting. And it's not like Joel is bogging it down. Like he's already bought into the premise so we can go forward to yeah. see what happens. And I think that's what's making this so great to watch. So he goes up there into the tower and he starts talking with Andrew Burns. And immediately there's a there is a lot of subtext with patriotic themes. We can see this by Ranger Burns saying that he got the job the day after Jimmy Carter took office. He starts talking about Alexander Hamilton, uh, which everybody knows now. Like everything he was saying was in the musical. So like everyone already knew all this stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And yeah, it's, um, it's really interesting that he's in a fire tower to begin with because one of our founding fathers, Benjamin Franklin, actually founded one of the first firefighting departments uh, Mm. in 1736. Nice, yeah. I think I remember hearing about that. Yeah, he founded the Union Fire Company in Philadelphia, which became the standard for volunteer fire organizations. Uh, Fire towers themselves, though, I think they began around like the very early 1900s with the U.S. Forestry Service. So they were done, again, by a government entity right there. Joel says something in this this scene where he says, seems like fire towers are going the way of the dodo bird. You know, because... It turns out they they want to remove Ranger Burns from his current position. And as you said, like they, they offered him a job opportunity to be this tour guide at the Hamilton estate in Manhattan. Ranger Burns would prefer, you know, working in, in, in a national park or something. But yeah, Joel says, you know, it just, it, it, how many fires have you noticed during your whole tenure here? He said you started the day after Carter took office. That's in, that's in 1977. So Um, how many fires have you seen since? And I think not counting like an engine fire, he, he stopped three fires. There only have been three fires in what's that, uh, almost 20 years. So maybe there's not a lot of use for Ranger Burns in this current position, but do you happen to know? I didn't actually look into this. Are are there still fire towers? Is that a thing? Uh, yeah, there's still, um, yeah, there's still fire towers, let me see. I guess it would make sense to have them. Like, I understand why, you you know, we don't want forest fires to be cropping up. I guess I wonder how much of that work is done by satellite or I don't know. The useful thing about them is that they're really effective in cheap fire safety measures. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's always good to go back to the basics like that. Yeah. Uh, let me see. So Idaho, Idaho is actually the state with the most lookout sites. There's 966 Whoa. of them. Well, yeah, well, hang on. Let me get to the end of the sentence. It's 196 <laughs> of them still exist. Oh, so, they, yeah. had a, they had like 900 and only 196 are still uh, Right. Uh, with roughly 60 staffed each summer. It's a pretty good amount. And there's only been one U.S. state that has never had a lookout. Let me uh, see if I can Kansas. guess. Oh, okay. Oh, shoot. I'm sorry. There's no <laughs> way you would have guessed Kansas, I, right? Yeah, there's no, there is no way. <laughs> I find that hard to believe because- That Kansas wouldn't have one? No, no, no. no that, that's the only U.S. state because why would, does Hawaii actually have one? I mean, I would imagine there's lots of lush um, flora in, in Hawaii that could catch fire. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I, yeah. I don't know. I, I was just picturing in my mind that like you would only have a lookout tower in like mountainous- Regions mm-hmm. with like a lot of forests, but I guess Hawaii probably has some mountains it, too. Yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah. it does. I, I just wasn't thinking about that. 
Well, I want to also say Ranger Burns, I mentioned already, is played by a new actor this time. He's played by Jimmy Ray Weeks in this episode, previously depicted in Aurora Borealis, as I said, by the actor John Procaccino. And I really did like John Procaccino's performance in that in that Aurora Borealis episode. And I remembered that I think when we were recording that episode, I'm like, oh, yeah, there's like another late appearance of Ranger Burns that we're going to get. Um, I was bummed to find out that he doesn't uh, make a recurring appearance. I don't know. I just really like that actor. He's He was very kind of, I don't know, meek and you know, sort of sullen, but I don't know. It's kind of, kind of like a an interesting fella. I, I think he also played in another Northern Exposure episode in a very small part. I, if I'm not mistaken, I think he's in a dream sequence when like Joel or Maggie has like a weird Wizard of Oz dream. Do you remember that whole Wizard of Oz ending to one episode? The ending? Might've been Jules at Joel. There's like an ending to one of the episodes that we watched maybe in the third season. Um, and they, they kind of have, you know, so, you know, the ending of Wizard of Oz where like Dorothy wakes up and she's surrounded by, you know, the different people at the farm. Well, there's a, there's a, an ending to one of the Northern Exposure episodes that is like that. I guess I'll have to find it right now. Let's see. Yeah, it was Jules et Joel, which I don't know if you remember that one. It's the one where Joel has like a twin. It's like in a dream sequence. The whole episode's kind yeah. of like a dream that you figure out at the end. It's all a dream. It has a weird Wizard of Oz sort of ending. No, oh, okay. That's really interesting that, <laughs> that he appeared toward there. I, I do like his performance as well. I think that... It was a welcome guest edition right there. I didn't realize because it had been so long ago that it was a different actor. I, yeah. I knew there was a Ranger Burns. I, I didn't. I didn't realize it was a completely different individual, though. They call him Stan a lot in this episode, so um, I'll, I'll probably keep saying Ranger Burns, but maybe I'll switch over to Stan. Anyway, if we're going to continue down the chronology of the episode, the next scene we get is um, Chris, as we said, he's kind of announcing President's Day is coming soon, and Maurice is doing a fireworks gala, and Chris and Ed are going to go do some fishing themselves. So we kind of get a setup to some events that we will see later in the episode. Um, this is kind of a perfect, you know, fork in the road scene. Uh, so we've already established the Ranger Burns sort of subplot. Now Chris has announced Maurice is doing a fireworks gala and also that he and Ed are going to um, go do some fishing. Which path should we choose now? Huh. I think that we should end with Maurice. Okay. Because the episode ends with Maurice. Yeah. Which leaves us between Joel and Ed. Hmm. Let's continue Joel, I guess, since we've already got um, sort of Joel and Ranger Burns. Yeah, sure. Let's go down Joel's path. So the next time that we see Joel is still at the fire lookout tower. It's gotten to nighttime. They've been there for like seven hours negotiating, which by the way, I think the gig he's being offered is like super awesome. I think, yeah, that, yeah if someone was like, yo, you want to be like a tour guide at this great place in New York? It's like, yeah, it's like, that sounds fantastic. And he says, um, Ranger Burns says that he's like, no, I don't, I don't want to be a tour guide. Like I'm not good with people. I don't have good social skills, but I know, we're going to see throughout this episode, and we heard in that opening soundbite that he does like to go on and on about sort of mundane facts, you know? And I think that, that is kind of perfect <laughs> for a tour guide, because in any other situation, I wouldn't want someone to just tell me all about 
um, Alexander Hamilton's house. You know, that sounds like a really boring conversation, but if I'm in the house, you know, I want to hear everything about that house. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, while they're having that conversation, uh, Ranger Burns is really concerned with the lightning that's happening mm. off of the coast. And in fact, yeah. the scene actually begins with uh, us looking through the binoculars and having lightning strike in the distance. It's kind of neat to see. I, we don't get those types of shots often. Lots of lightning and flashing lights in this episode, not just in the Ranger Burns and Joel plot line, but kind of all throughout. Lots of really cool, you know, nighttime with, you know, it's an artificial, you know, it's an effect that they do with just big lamps to make like a flash, but... uh I always like that, even if it's not always realistic, but it it has this sort of um, film language quality that we know, you know, this is lightning. And it, I don't know, it, it really adds a certain cool feel to it that I love. The atmospherics of it, it's just great. Yeah, exactly. It's um, it's hard to capture that in non-audiovisual mediums. And it's really hard to capture that also in like stage plays. Like if they try to like mimic lightning, mm -hmm. it just doesn't feel as cozy as seeing it in the film. I guess what you say makes perfect sense about it. How like it's a part of film language. Like our eyes and our senses are honed in to be like, all right, when this happens, we know what the tone is going to be. Yeah. Ranger Burns gives a fact uh, here in this scene as well. I just wrote it down as a quote that I like. He says, lightning restores electrical equilibrium to the earth. Did you know that? I, I definitely didn't know that. I still don't actually even know what that means, but it's like kind of an interesting. Lightning is just so interesting. I mean, who's not, who doesn't think lightning is cool, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I'm not afraid to admit this, but like, <laughs> I'm still kind of like a wuss Dude. around like yeah. really loud noises. So when like, whenever I hear like thunder and lightning and like a really bright flash happens i usually like cover my ears i'm like ah oh, crap like it's about to happen <laughs> hey it's about to be something like really loud i'm right there with you because uh i i mean well i i just really can't take it if there's a like a tornado warning we live in an area where i guess that's not uncommon but it's not like something where tornadoes just like rip through louisiana all the time but i mean we get hurricanes and i don't know man sometimes we get some really bad lightning storms that you know, at two in the morning, literally, I'm on the second floor. So it's like this episode of Northern Exposure where the lights are flashing because we're in the middle of this crazy lightning storm. And I can see all the trees because I'm on the second story. I can see all the leaves and branches just like getting destroyed by wind. You know, it'll say like um, tornado warning for 30 more minutes. You know, I'm just going to like, I'm watching my phone counting down the minutes waiting for, <laughs> waiting for the warning to end. Yeah, I know. Uh, Ranger Burns is convinced by Joel to come down. He says, like, they're not going to press charges. And if you just do the gig for like two years or something like that, they're going to reassign you to a better place. But more importantly, you've just been cooped up in this tower for too long. You know, I, I bet in a couple hours we're going to be having drinks at the Brick and we're going to forget all about this. We're going to be laughing about this. We're going to be friends. And that's the that's the code word that he latches on to because in the next scene where you see Joel back in his office, but Ranger Burns pays him a visit. He's like, hey, you know, what about breakfast? Like there's kind of like, a, you know, a insinuation that we were going to hang out the next day and Joel has to 
politely brush him off. He says like, ah, oh, no, like, you know, I'm not really your friend. And, but he doesn't say that. No, 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 Ranger yet. Burns. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't grasp the situation right there. He's also escorted by Officer Szymanski, which we forgot to mention. Oh, yeah. She's back in this episode. She's in that first scene too, yeah. So double double header, right? Because she was in the last episode, I think. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I didn't think Joel was lying when he said, you know, as your friend, I urge you, come down from this tower. You know, we can go get some drinks at the, at the brick. And I can understand, you know, Joel's not like going to be best friends with Ranger Burns, but I think it is, man, it's pretty cold hearted when, you know, Ranger Burns is first introduced back into like society. He's been in this tower for 20 years or something. And now uh, Joel kind of will brush him off. But very thankfully, Joel's like, you know, maybe he, maybe he's not making up an excuse. Maybe he really does have like a lot of important business. He's the only doctor in town. He might have a lot of important business to do. So he can't join Ranger Burns for breakfast, but he does say, tell you what, how about lunch? So that's a bit of a a nice gesture there, though. I don't think Joel meets him for lunch that day. You know, he kind of just lets Ranger Burns explore the town kind of meet some other people because the next time we're ever going to see him is a little bit more down into the plot and we see him talking with Maggie in Ruth Ann's store and he's just going on and on and on about the uh I want to say it's like the internal combustion engine in yeah. the airplanes <laughs> yeah something about I think you're I think you're totally right he's talking with her about planes and it's clear this is kind of our first indication that he's um He's a a bit of a talker, a little too much, a bit of a nerd. And Maggie is like smiling politely, but we can sense just from her expressions that she's maybe trying to find an angle out. I think she, I think Joel even like, I think it's Joel. He like comes in and she's like, oh, Joel, like, you know, she branches off over to him. Um, she finds an, she finds an out to get away from, a, <laughs> to get away from Ranger Burns. Yeah, and the scene ends with him talking with another individual. I don't think we're ever really seen who that person is. I think it's just like a random mm. guy on there. What's really interesting is that in Ruth Ann's store, there's a lot of patriotic decorations. Mm-hmm. There's like the American flag. There's a doodle of George Washington. <laughs> uh, red, white, and blue fans. Yeah, they're fans. Okay. Oh, yeah, like, they, yeah. like sort of, uh, yeah, I know what you're talking about. We're kind of... Um, What's that? It's almost like accordion style or something. Yeah. Fans those out like things. that. <laughs> yeah. Definitely in that President's Day spirit. Again, I wish uh I wish this had lined up with with actual President's Day. They're they're a little bit ahead of us in, in Sicily. They're in they're in the future a little bit. Um, though also 30 years ago. But um, <laughs> let's see. I also wrote down, oh, this is funny. I wrote in my notes about Ranger Burns. To be honest, he's kind of just like my neighbors. Like my neighbors are just like, I, I live in a kind of an old neighborhood. Uh, not all my neighbors, but um, the ones that I interact with the most are just old people. And I don't know, not trying to sound like, not trying to diss anybody, but, you know, I can get stuck in conversations where, you know, I park my car and I've got to go like unload my car and get everything inside. But I'm just like sitting there talking with <laughs> one of my neighbors for not going to lie, like 15 minutes. And then it's like, 
all right, see you later. (laughs) (laughs) I try to do a middle ground. So like, it's like a white lie. We're like, (laughs) I do want to talk to them. Like, I I, I think it's really fun, in my opinion, to talk with random individuals, particularly with older people. Because I understand that like, they're just lonely. Uh, They don't have anyone else to talk to. I understand that. That sucks. I would like to help you out on there. Let's talk. Let's, you know, what, what, what you got to share. And I'll try to share with you back. But then after like, I don't know, like 15, you know, you know, around that ballpark of minutes, I'll usually make up something or maybe I don't even have to make up. Maybe I'll generally <laughs> be like, oh, that was really fun talking to you. Uh, I'm sorry. I really have to go now. And then like firmly say that and then just, you know, leave. Yeah. I almost wonder if this is just what happens when you grow up or, or if this is like a sort of a cultural change for me, like uh, through fr- from when I was born, like in the 90s, but it feels like now it's more and more like, you know, well, the reason why I'm like not wanting to talk, I, I agree with you. I like talking with uh, my neighbors. I think they're genuinely cool people, but it's sort of like that feeling of like, oh, wait, I didn't portion out any time right now to like spend 15 minutes talking to my neighbor. Like I've got other things I'm in the middle of. And I mean, of course I'm not like at work, I'm at home, but I guess a lot of the work I do is at home now too. But anyway, what I'm trying to say is, uh, I feel like now my attitude is more like, don't talk to me right now. Like I didn't portion out any time for like (laughs) social activity. Uh, I'm also kind of an introvert, but, um, I don't know, maybe back in the day when I was a kid, I didn't have any responsibilities and I could just like meander about. And if I was, I was probably a lot more bored too. Now I have lots of things to entertain me. I don't want to like sit and talk with my neighbors all the time. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's like, it, it's, it's entirely up to mood. Like it's just like, <laughs> am I in a mood that wants to talk to them? Like I remember, um, me and you had just went to a wedding of a mutual friend, uh, mm-hmm. Tyler. He was just on the pod. Oh uh, yeah. Congrats, Tyler. Two-time guest, right? Yeah, two-time guest. He wasn't on recently. Sorry, I meant to correct myself on that. But like, <laughs> he, he's been on the pod multiple times. And we were at his wedding. And I was seated next to uh, some older individual. I think we were like in their deep 60s, 70s or something. <laughs> uh, before the bride and groom walked down the aisle and, you know, did the whole thing right there. And I remember just talking with them for like, I don't know. Just for like 25, 30 minutes. Yeah. I didn't, like just about nonsense. I didn't know anything about them, but I thought it was, I thought it was hilarious. Yeah. It's great to, you know, it's great to just like randomly get into a conversation, especially when you're in a, you're in that sort of uh, setting where you're just like, I'm here to just hang out with people. It's kind of like a, I guess like being in a bar too can be like that. You randomly just have conversations with strangers. Oh, yeah, definitely. Well, we're going to see that play out into the next scene with (laughs) Ranger Burns because he's going to be talking the ear off of Ruth and Joel kind of comes in and sees what, you know, they're talking about, but then he dips out of the conversation. He realizes that he's going on a little bit too much about tubers. (laughs) So he goes to the bar where Hauling is tending to it and Hauling is actually like keeping track. He's got like a little notepad about how long each individual can talk with them, which I get, like, I understand that, but I also think it's kind of cruel. Yeah, it's a little messed up. I guess it's more of a function of of the story, you know? It, it, it seems like, and, and Ranger Burns has probably only been here for, what, a day or so? You know, what, 
the first couple of times you hang out with Ranger Burns, you're like, oh, this guy talks a lot. And then maybe like a couple of days later, you're like, wow, like this is, he only knows how to talk very long. Like I could understand doing this thing because the thing they're doing now is um, Ruth Ann is the current record holder. Like she's <laughs> the person who has lasted the longest with um, with Stan here. But um, but yeah, I also agree. I think that's a little odd that it kind of happens so quickly that and, and a bit cruel that he's keeping track like that. Right. He's just he's just like getting used to people again. I think that's what uh that's what Joel says, right? He's like he's just like trying to get to meet people. Yeah, it's not like he's like I don't know, mean or anything. I, I get that he's overstepping his boundaries and taking over people's time, but yeah, still I, I feel like someone should have set him down and talk to him. I don't, I don't see how Joel was the first one to do it. They do put it, they put it on Joel. Cause I think Hollings like, you should really talk to him, Joel, or, or maybe Shelly says that one of, one of the two tell him they kind of make it. So like, Joel, you should talk to him. Like you're, you're his friend, right? That's what he said. He said, my friend Joel told me about this place. And, uh, um, oh, I also wrote down he's Stan is renting the attic room and the brick. Right. And Joel does eventually have that talk with him. He comes into Joel's office, and this is where the opening soundbite comes in, where Joel's telling him, like, you don't have to read from a book or, like, recite a bunch of information. That's not what makes you really interesting. Um, it, it, it makes you come off as, like, really robotic and just not organic in the conversation. Yeah, this is the scene where um, the, the soundbite came from, right? The opening soundbite. Mm-hmm. And Burns is actually going to see Joel about finally getting some lunch. This was a completely different day, um, I'm pretty sure. And um, yeah, Joel is gives the worst excuses. He says he's uh, trying to catch up on some back reading. Like, <laughs> I can understand, you know, you got to catch up on some back reading, but I think anyone would rather go to lunch than you know, do this require this sort of like uh, required assignment of, re- of reading stuff. I don't know. Maybe some people really like catching up on that. But um, Joel, you can sense he feels a little guilt, and so he does, as he was instructed, I guess, by Holling and Shelley. He he does try to give him some advice there. Is it the end of this scene where Joel is like, I mean, we're friends, but but you know first and foremost i'm more of like your your physician your friendly physician but like more of your doctor than your friend it is he he kind of reintroduces himself in that light which obviously distresses ranger burns and yeah. we see that come into play the next time joel goes into the brick where everyone says like oh it's like it's great he hasn't come down he hasn't bothered anybody he's just been in this room the whole time and there are playing cards at this moment yeah, I, I thought it was kind of strange that this was happening because this town seems very inclusive. Yeah. So I'm not saying that they, you know, Ranger Burns isn't committing something wrong. But I, again, I, I feel like it's it seems almost mean-spirited in the way that they're handling this. But yeah. maybe they just had to do it this way in order to create this plot line in order for it to move in this general direction because the way it ends is that Joel goes and visits Ranger Burns. Is it at the rented out room, actually? Yeah. And, you know, I'd, I bet we've probably never seen this set before because they talk about it earlier. Holling and Shelley are like, yeah, you know, we always had that room. We wanted to rent it out at some point. We just, you know, had finally fixed it up or something. So this would have been probably the first time we would ever see this room. But, yeah, he's. I'm pretty sure he just stays there that, that the whole episode pretty much. 
I mean, like that's where he's um that's where he's crashing. Yeah, it's really interesting because it looks like it does not belong <laughs> in yeah, the same yeah. uh, vicinity as the brick. Right. Yeah. I mean, by the same token, uh, Shelley and Hollings' room, which is now renovated with all pink, is also very out of place. But I we talked about this before. I like how as the series has progressed, you know. It's it's gotten that pink renovation, but then also we see more and more sort of like uh, taxidermy deer and just more like uh, rustic decorations mixed in with the pink uh, princess sort of vibe. Mm, yeah, you're right. This is where they have their heart-to-heart conversation, mm-hmm. where they're revealing more about each other than uh, resuscitation of facts and Ranger Burn reveals, you know, some private details. He says, like, I was, like, uh, children of four. And Joel says, like, you know, that's, like, kind of not the same as me, but, like, I kind of get where you're coming from. And they're just having a chat. And and we can see that the barriers between them are going away. We can see that, like, this is their first real uh, moment of being friends. Yeah. And it's a, I think it's a really beautiful scene because, well, I, I also just love the, this conversation they have about talking about sort of more personal things, even if they're kind of silly and um, kind of negligible details. Like, I think Ranger Burns is like, you know, I like Franco American spaghetti. And Joel says, I like, you know, Chef Boyardee, ravioli, beef. <laughs> um, but they do talk more about personal things too. Um, but it, it's really, it's really cool because, when Joel comes up to this, to, to, to Ranger Burns' room, to this scene, he starts by sort of basically saying, look, the fact is I lied about being your friend. I'm sorry. It's not that, you know, you're not a bad guy. You just got to work on the social skills stuff. This is what I wrote down, uh, you know, paraphrasing from this scene. So it's really neat that Joel, you know, finally comes out. He has to come out about, I guess, kind of leading Ranger Burns on about this whole friend thing. But it's neat that Joel starts the scene by saying, like, I'm not really your friend. But then now they're kind of actually starting, as you said, to really have like a a nice like heart to heart or or one on one conversation. And this kind of feels like friendship or at least the start of it. Like you said, they talk about family. Um, Ranger Burns, his father was a truck driver. Joel, his father in the concrete business still is actually. We actually met Joel's dad in that episode, um, Birds of a Feather. And Charles, we never really figured out what his dad did. I think we were like assuming he was a contractor or something like that or a repairman. I guess it's pretty pretty close to the concrete business. Yeah, I guess that's what his job is, which uh, <laughs> I don't know if we can like dig into subtext right there. I, I guess if you really wanted to, you can be like, it forms the foundation mm. of a lot of Joel's life. Ergo, he is like, you know, he's involved with concrete. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's neat because it's, uh, like I said, it's sort of like the start of a friendship. It's what it feels like. But also, this is also Joel teaching Ranger Burns, like how to have a conversation because he's like, you know, tell me something about your life and then I'll tell you something about me and we'll try to have a conversation. And Ranger Burns will talk for a little bit and stop. And um, Joel, you know, kind of without saying anything, like waits and... uh, basically kind of like insinuating like, okay, now you ask me, you know, ask me and then I'll respond. So, you know, teaching Ranger Burns, it's about listening and engaging with the other person. 
I guess it makes sense. You know, if you, if you don't have another person to, to engage with, it's kind of like always an internal monologue in your head. So right. you might need to, might need a little jump start here with conversation. Yeah. What I found really interesting is that it kind of parallels with, uh, Joel's plot line with Adam. We haven't gotten mm. to that yet, but throughout the episode, Adam calls Joel Marcus Welby. Marcus Welby was a character from like the 1960s, I want to say. Yeah. Um, and he was a doctor and he had an unorthodox way of treating patients. And it was, it was always pitted against the more straight laced methods of uh, Dr. Kylie. So the comparison to Dr. Welby and Dr. Fleischman in this episode is that like he takes a lot of skills from Mr. Welby. He takes the bedside manner. He mm-hmm. knows how to communicate with his patients more, which is going to be with Ranger Burns and I think that's what's really selling this scene right here. I know they've explored this territory before on bedside manners and stuff, Mm -hmm. but I thought it was kind of neat to see right here. Um, It wasn't done in like a super clear way, but you can kind of see how the plot lines are intertwined to get them to this ending. Yeah. I like that you pointed that out because I think some of the best Northern exposure is sort of showcasing this aspect of more of the bedside manner like that is a big, um, uh, an important quality for a doctor. And Joel, as we know, is, I think he's a great doctor. You know, he's got, you know, he knows his stuff. He's a very knowledgeable doctor, but where he kind of lacks from time and again is, uh, you know, remembering his patients and sort of being human with them in a way. So as you said, this has definitely happened before on Northern Exposure, but, you know, we've never had an episode with, uh, you know, someone who has been removed from society for like 20 years, you know, this is, <laughs> it is a, a, a unique angle on this idea of bedside manner and sort of um, being a friend to your patient, I guess. And the final scene between Ranger Burns and Joel is going to be at Maurice's fireworks demonstration, where he kind of rattles off about the history of the firework, which is entirely true, by the way, he is right that it originated in China. And he apologizes, says, like, I'm sorry, it's kind of hard to shake off. And Joel says, like, no, it's okay. Like, it's going to be a process. Yeah, I loved that. I I wrote it down. Um, You know, fireworks originated in China. This is what uh, Ranger Burns says. Some say it was during the Tang Dynasty. Others say it was during the Southern Song. And then he, like, kind of pauses. Not that it matters. Like, he he cuts himself off. And as you said, Joel's like, you know, it's okay, man. Don't worry about that. Like, it's a... As you said, it's a process, but that's just a good example of, they do this, you know, in Northern Exposure and in just a lot of media where you have a character undergo some change, but in sort of the final, uh, you know, epilogue or the denouement, we still see that they're, you know, they, they may have undergone this personal change for the better, but they're still at their core themselves. So we get to see Ranger Burns is still, you know, he's still a nerd at heart. (laughs) You know, it's a one step at a time change. You know, it's nothing too dramatic, I guess. Right. It's a great ending for Joel's plotline. And I think that we can rewind back down to Chris and Ed. Yeah. We talked about Chris earlier doing the radio address about President's Day, about the sale at Leo's auto place. And he mentions that he's going to go fishing with Ed. And we see them at the riverbanks and... Uh, immediately, Ed talks about how his idea of George Washington was kind of shattered earlier by Joel, who said that, like, he never really did cut down a cherry tree. 
you know, that's just something that they made up in this autobiography that was written about him back in the 1800s. So Ed already is having disillusionment about uh, not necessarily like heroes, but more about like what things that he thought were real now turn out to be not real. Yeah, he's kind of struggling with that. That's a good word. The disillusionment sort of feeling. And this is a great uh, beginning um, to to start us off down this storyline. But um, you know, this they they are in fact fishing in a lightning storm. Like when we cut to them, <laughs> it's not. It's basically nighttime. Like it's dark. And I think the first line is like, "Well, what do you think, man? Should we get out of here?" It's like, "Yeah, why are you fishing in this full blown <laughs> lightning storm?" Um, and uh, it you know it doesn't take too too long. Um, but well, I guess before we get to <laughs> The titular bolt from the blue, spoilers, um, they do also talk about Pretty Woman. Well, it's it's it talks about the movie Pretty Woman in relation to this George Washington biography. And as you were saying, Charles, like, you know, that was all made up for George Washington's biography. They kind of made it more larger than life. And the reasoning, I guess, is to sell more copies. Actually, I think Chris says something like, you know, he wrote this biography on George Washington and it wasn't selling, so he punched it up. I don't know if that's true or not, but I guess the idea is, you know, punched it up to make more sales. And um, Ed, of course, relates it to Pretty Woman, which I didn't know this, but the original script, he says, had a a much darker take. Uh, Then they cast Julia Roberts, who sort of has like the star power. She's very pretty. You know, they Ed says in the movie, they let her go shopping, take a bubble bath. Not, Not a very dark lens there. Um, but he said they also made a cool $150 million. So, you know, that's the whole marketing aspect of that. Yeah. And right after he's done explaining that, that is where he gets struck by lightning right there, (laughs) which, uh, I'm surprised. I I don't, I mean, I don't know a lot about lightning, but it seems like Chris should have also been, he's like like right next to him. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. Yeah. I'm not really sure how that would work, but, um, yeah, it's quite an abrupt. It's literally in the middle of a line. I think Ed is saying something like, uh, "Guess we have Jeffrey Katzenberg to thank for that," or something. I think he's about to say that, but he he gets struck by lightning by the mention of Jeffrey Katzenberg's name, um, and he's blasted in this dazzling flash. And he's also sent flying backwards. Like you can, we have the Blu-rays. Um, I don't know if you can see this on the DVD or or not, but you can see on the Blu-ray the the wire, like the cable that's pulling Ed, but he's, you know, they did some, they did some like stunt wire and like lifted him off the ground and pulled him backwards. Fancy. Yeah, it's pretty cool. He's actually, so he's like on the ground and Chris rushes over to him. There's another like cool panning shot, like following Chris, like making sure Ed's still alive. I think he's mostly looks unscathed. Like I think when you're struck by lightning, I think some people get crazy like electrical burns that kind of look like lightning on their skin. But the worst that happened to Ed is his like toes and his fingernails are all black and uh, his shoes. He was blasted out of his shoes because we see like from Ed's perspective, a close up on his shoes, which are like maybe a couple meters in front of him, still like planted on the ground, but with smoke rising out of them. Yeah, there's a lot of subtext in that. Uh, I think the most obvious one is that he is now leaving the ground like mm-hmm. he is uh, abandoning his preconceived notions of what things are which is like the the ground that supports him 
And now the lightning kind of sends him off away from that. So he no longer has any clear foundation to walk on, which is why I think that shoe shot is so prominent. Yeah, it's a very, um, I feel like, so it's been a couple of days since I watched this episode, but I feel like there's some cool like close-up shots, things like that um, in this episode. Like that's a close-up insert on his shoes. Um, you know, if it comes up, I'll, I'll, I'll point it out. But I guess I should just go ahead and say, I think it's a pretty well-directed episode too. Some pretty cool, uh, like we mentioned before, the opening shot is nice. I think the handling of this very abrupt, um, you know, lightning strike, which they've been doing some pretty wacky stuff in this season, but, and and this is definitely very wacky, but it it seems like it's handled uh, more carefully than, we're always going to harp on, um, Nadine Fleischman jumping off of the cliff and flying. (laughs) Though I guess like, you know, the technology wasn't there. The budget wasn't there. Like, I don't know if I can blame the director. They they tried to make it look very magical, which is what made it really odd. Whereas in this one, it's super abrupt and it's quick. So like it's, you know, uh, quote unquote jolting. So I think that's why it effectively works right there. The strike, the strike itself is edited kind of heavily because probably because you could probably see that wire and maybe like the way that Ed is pulled in that like sort of stunt where he's pulled on the cable probably didn't look amazing. So they cut to like different shots and reactions and things like that. But I think that editing is also what makes it, as you said, it's like abrupt, quick, um, paced very well and and not, um, it doesn't like linger on a shot that doesn't work, you know, it cuts around around anything that's not needed, I guess. Yeah. I was actually surprised at how well that was done (laughs) because I knew that was like, I don't think it's like CGI. I don't think they had the technology for that back in the day. So it had to have been practical effects right there. And that brings us to the next scene involving Ed, which is he's in Joel's office. He has all of his clothes burnt off. He's really just laid to his bare skin, which again is like another subtext to him being like kind of reborn again in Mm -hmm. the context. He's uh, reevaluating the way that he sees things. And Joel tells him that he's just lucky enough to be alive. There's, you know, a lot of people die from lightning strikes, actually, and you should just be happy at the fact that you're still standing. But the key thing to take away from this is that I don't think Ed is very happy with that explanation, or at least it doesn't sate his curiosity because immediately in his next scene, we see him in Ruth Ann's store where he's trying to uh, see if he has any superpowers. He's trying to see if this very rare coincidence imbued him with any sort of unique outlets, some sort of (laughs) thing that he's been trained to believe will actually come true. Ed has obviously seen a lot of movies and read comic books, so he's led to believe that if you get struck by lightning, you get superpowers, (laughs) just like he is led to believe that George Washington cut down a cherry tree, but he realizes that, like, no, that's not actually true. He's been misled. Yeah, Ed is, like, doing weird stuff with the cans. That's how Ruth Ann sort of notices he's... Uh, I think he says he is hoping for some temporary magnetism to work out. As you said, I think he wants those superpowers, but um, guess not, he says. And Ruthann, concerned for him, they kind of have a talk about it. And yeah, it's it's exactly as you put it, Charles. It's just like Ed figured there might be, he says, it just seems like there would be more to it than that. And this is a great example of sort of like a Northern exposure anticlimax. There's a lot of anticlimactic sort of beats 
in Northern Exposure and something fantastic will just happen, like Ed was struck by lightning. But what I think makes this episode so amazing is that it's it doesn't end with Ed having some weird superpowers or odd dreams, uh, you know, things like that. It's just sort of like the kind of bummer of like, well, what do I do now that I've been struck by lightning? <laughs> it's kind of just the same as before. Right. Ed muses that like, it's like a one out of 10 million chance or something absurdly low mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that this would happen. So surely that's got to have some sort of deeper meaning behind it, some sort of cosmic significance. But the more that we go down this path, we realize that like, no, it was actually nothing. Uh, Chris goes on to another monologue later in the episode where he's discussing how George Washington had this completely different side that we're not mm-hmm. usually taught in American history. He's talking about the, um, I want to say it's the seven year war. Yeah. Do, do you remember this? I, I didn't write down what the conflict was, but the outcome was, you know, George Washington, this is when he was, when he was young. I think he says 22 years old and he already, he brought down the wrath of two countries on him. Like it was the British and the French are, it was a battle that I think Washington lost or something like that. Yeah. His main point was that he was trying to demonstrate that like there are sides to him that you don't realize and that things aren't what they always appear to be. This is really brought to a climax at the scene with Ed and Adam. Ed is tending to Ruthann's store, and Mm. (laughs) he writes to Leonard uh, about the significance of being struck by lightning, and he's really disappointed at the answer that Leonard gives him. And Adam walks by and asks him, like, what's wrong? Like, you didn't get into the college of your choice? (laughs) And Ed says, like, no, like, I I wrote this letter, and I was hoping that it meant something more. But all Leonard wrote back was don't carry metal objects in a thunderstorm. (laughs) So that is like the big statement because that, you know, Leonard's his teacher. Right. And even he's telling him like, it was just a series of coincidences. This, this doesn't mean anything in the grand scale of the universe. Yeah. I love that answer from Leonard and just the way it was sort of set up in the scene and paid off there. And, um, well, I mean, Adam does stick around and kind of give his opinion of this all. He uh, he says, the universe is a hostile place. Let's see, actually, I think I have a, a bite of this, but it's just Adam being Adam. You want to know what it means, huh? I'll tell you what it means. The universe is a hostile place, Chigliak. Yes? Yeah, you think nature is some Disney movie? Nature is a killer, pal. Nature is a bitch. It's feeding time out there. 24 hours a day. Every step that you take is a gamble with death. If it isn't getting hit by lightning today, it's an earthquake tomorrow or some deer tick carrying Lyme disease. Either way, you're ending up on the wrong end of the food chain. It's uh, rather upsetting. Well, it's supposed to be upsetting, you moron. Life is nasty, brutish, and short. Eke homo. Man, Adam Arkin is such a good actor. Sorry, I, uh... (laughs) I really like him in this episode. Uh, I think he does, like, sometimes Adam is, it's like a, it's a welcome face. Like, I'm like, oh, great, Adam's in this episode. But his plot line's like, ah, it's whatever. But he usually always has a lot of fun with the performances. But I think this is a great Adam episode, too, just like the story and what he's doing in the episode. But um, I uh, I was telling you, Charles, before we recorded, I was uh, watching the movie Pig last night with Nicolas Cage and Adam Arkin is actually in that movie as well. He's like what? incredible in that movie too. It's just, he's so good. 
Yeah, I know. He's definitely a really talented actor. I uh, I don't think he's like really been the leading man for anything, has he? Yeah, no, I don't think so. Um, but he's just sort of like a character actor. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a great scene to shatter Ed's worldview of how things are. If it wasn't already shattered by George Washington, it's really being hammered home by Adam in this scene. And we can really see this come into a climax for Ed because we see him in his home uh, laying down in his bed. He's destitute. He's distraught. His entire vantage point of how he sees things are being realigned. But thankfully, Chris comes in which is like the right character at the right moment. He comes in to kind of tell him that like, you know, uh, the worldview that you're having right there, it kind of like, you know, it's, it's always been discussed. This isn't like a new thing. Like things are broken all the time, but mm-hmm. it's really entirely up to you on how you view it. He uses a word called like a uh, Weltanschauung, which I had never heard oh, of. Oh Yeah. Yeah, it means like a system or set of beliefs that mm-hmm. one adheres to. And I'm sorry, uh, what were you going to say? No, yeah, I was going to I was just going to define it, uh, which you just did. Yeah. But he <laughs> he gives the sort of the counterpoint to Adam. Uh but go ahead. Yeah, what, what does he say? Yeah, he starts talking about man versus wild, the Calvinist approach, uh <laughs> just really all these different ways of looking at things and Ed asks him like, "Well, what do you think?" and Chris offers him one of the interpretations. He says, like, you know, one way that you can look at this is that you got spared by a a very cruel fate. Something terrible could have happened to you. You definitely could have died from this lightning blast, but you're still alive. And then Ed says, like, do you believe that? And Chris says, like, I don't know, because that's just (laughs) me. Like, you can define how you want to view it. Yeah. Chris says it's like the whole Gaia perspective of like Mother Earth viewing the world as a single organism, he says. And um, yeah, it's like you should not view it as a scary place, like take it as if this is a, um, a loving place that is protecting you from harm and that uh, life is precious, you know, like you, you saw in that moment that it was fleeting away. But I, I guess uh, the what it boils down to, as you just said, is, you know, this is a great perspective, but I think we're still sort of cut loose because I don't think Ed can just latch on to this philosophy either because just as you said, and as Chris said, he's like, I don't know. He's just, he's basically like, I don't know if I believe that. It's just something I tossed out there. So it's not so much what Chris believes that Ed needs to find here. It's still this sort of meaning that he needs to find for himself, I guess. Right. Something that would resonate with him more, maybe. Exactly. And the neat thing is that they could have ended this plot line right here, but they take it one step forward by uh, introducing Marilyn for the first time in the episode. Mm -hmm. It's been a while since we've seen her. Yeah. We see the two characters in the laundromat uh, again, where they're like, they're getting so much mileage out of this (laughs) laundromat right here. Yeah. I I, I don't want to... I mean, we can. It's the mission statement of this podcast. But like, I, I don't want to endow the, the laundromat with special meaning every We've time. We've done it there. every single episode. <laughs> We've tried, <laughs> or you know, like we have to. You know, we have to ask ourselves that every episode. We're getting tired of it. Um, I think we're also just like, you know, when we started the season, um, we were a little standoffish because of the change in uh, showrunner. And also just like, oh, what is this new set? Like, why is everyone like all of the sudden everyone does laundry? Like this never happened before. This is not the old Northern exposure that we know and love. 
Um, it's fine. You know, they have a laundromat, but yeah, you're right. They are. They definitely built this set this season and they're going to get their money's worth out of it. Yeah, I know. They, they have so many deep conversations <laughs> in this laundromat, uh, including today's yes. conversation between Ed and Marilyn. Ed kind of muses to her and says like, there's two contrasting views that are happening here. Is it a nihilistic universe where we're all just fending to survive and, you know, it's just might makes right? Or does the creator have a master plan? Is it like the enlightenment view prevails? Those are two entirely juxtaposing ideas. Mm -hmm. You can't really have both of them coexist. I mean, you can, but it would just do a lot of, you'd have to do a lot of thinking to make those two (laughs) align with each other. And that's what's confusing Ed because he doesn't know which one of those two views are the right views. And then that's when Marilyn goes into her story about a warrior and his prize stallion. My uncle once told me about a warrior who had a fine stallion. Everybody said how lucky he was to have such a horse. Maybe, he said. One day the stallion ran off. The people said the warrior was unlucky. Maybe, he said. Next day, the stallion returned, leading a string of fine ponies. The people said it was very lucky. Maybe, the warrior said. Later, the warrior's son was thrown from one of the ponies and broke his leg. The people said it was unlucky. Maybe, the warrior said. The next week, the chief led a war party against another tribe. Many young men were killed, but because of his broken leg, the warrior's son was left behind and so was spared. Yeah, I feel like oftentimes we get some very poignant, you know, Marilyn laying down the wisdom, you know, in a lot of episodes and she'll tell like sort of a parable. I think this is, um, you know, I think if we did that every episode, it would quickly get pretty, pretty cheesy, but I don't know. I, I was really moved by this story. I think particularly because it comes at the moment that Ed needs it the most, you know, they've been building up to this with Adam's point of view. And we also get Chris's point of view and and his, well, you know, his offering to Ed. And so it's all sort of leading up to how do we, as you just said, like leading into this, as you just said, Charles, like how do you balance both the nihilistic universe and uh, the idea of an, like sort of the enlightenment philosophy? Right, exactly. Uh, one thing that I thought was really interesting is that we've actually heard like a similar story between this because I, I know we've both seen Charlie Wilson's War. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> Philip Seymour Hoffman's character gives. Uh, pretty much the exact same story. The theme is exactly the same. The characters are like slightly different. It's not a warrior and it's prize stallion. I, I believe that it's a, I believe it's a Zen master and the little boy. Listen, not for nothing, but, but, but do you know the story about the Zen master and the little boy? Oh, is this some from Nitsa, the Greek witch of Aqualippa, Pennsylvania? Yeah, as a matter of fact, it is. There's a little boy on his 14th birthday, he gets a horse. And everybody in the village says, how wonderful, the boy got a horse. And the Zen master says, we'll see. Two years later, the boy falls off the horse, breaks his leg, and everybody in the village says, how terrible. And the Zen master says, we'll see. 
Then a war breaks out, and all the young men have to go off and fight, except the boy can't because his leg's all messed up. And everybody in the village says, how wonderful. And the Zen master says, we'll see. So you get it. No. No, because I'm stupid. You're not stupid. You're just in Congress. Yeah, that's also such a great scene. I mean, we were talking about this a little bit before, watching clips from Charlie Wilson's War. Um, I haven't seen that since probably high school, but man, does it, I think it holds up just from watching those scenes. It looks like, I got, I got to watch this again soon. It looks like a lot of fun. Um, but yeah, that's so interesting that it's, you know, I don't know, Sorkin does that thing every once in a while where he's like, you know, a wise man told me this or said that, you know, like he's he's quoting something, but it's maybe such an old parable or idea that it kind of has no origin or author. And actually, uh, Charles, I had to look this up because I was trying to figure out like, this must come from something. If it's featured here in Northern Exposure, Charlie Wilson's War, uh, we were just doing some searching and Charles, you were like, the only thing that I can find is Charlie Wilson's War. I found some stories that seem to sort of um, directly quote this Northern Exposure, maybe sort of like plagiarize this Northern Exposure um, scene. But after uh, more searching, I found um, this idea that it's sort of like this Taoist story. And there's a Wikipedia article called The Old Man Lost His Horse, parentheses, but it all turned out for the best. So there is a whole, you know, not not super long, but a, a short Wikipedia article about this idea. And uh, there is a subheading, the potential origin, proverbs, things like that. And perhaps the oldest mention of this idea, not exactly the story, but this idea of, you know, how do you know if something is good or bad? According to Wikipedia, it says it's found in Tao Te Ching by Lao Tzu, uh, like a 6th to 4th century BC. But I think the expression of the old man lost his horse, but it all turned out for the best, comes from Changyu, traditional Chinese idiomatic expressions. Uh, so yeah, this goes way back, it appears, but it's probably less attributable to a single author and more of just like a phrase or saying that sort of developed in a culture. Yeah, that about it makes sense. Like, it's so handy, and uh, there's so much truth to it that, like, yeah. I don't know if you could just subscribe it to just be, like, in one particular story. This, like, this guy made it up. Yeah, it's it's more of, like, an idea, yeah. Right. Uh, so solid. I think that's a great way to end Ed's plotline, because it's a great food for thought for him to think about. We're not led to what he believes in in the end. That That's not the important thing. The important thing is that he has... Uh, yeah, the idea that it can go either way. Yeah, it's all about just like a perspective or a point of view. You can't really know it all until the end. From, from what we learned from this story, like you can't make a judgment on a single moment. If you do, it sort of leaves out the context of what came before, what comes after. It can go either way. And um, yeah, you kind of, I don't know, it's more of having an open-minded perspective. Right. It's really funny that we were talking about Charlie Wilson's war, which is about the Afghan Mujahideen during the Soviet-Afghan war uh, around like the late 70s all the way through to the 80s, because that's really going to come into the plot line, or at least a little bit of it, in the last one that we haven't touched upon, which is going to be Maurice and Adam. Okay, yeah, got some more connections to Charlie Wilson's war, but let's let's loop it in with, the, with their plot line. So if we go back to... 
towards more of the start of Maurice's plot line. Well, we mentioned already that Chris announced on K-Bear, Maurice is going to do a fireworks gala for President's Day. And uh, the first scene we actually see with Maurice comes kind of right after that. Maurice is talking with a fireworks maestro. This guy, I don't know if we get his name at first, but he's uh, Salvatore D'Angelo. That's the company is like the D'Angelo, something like that. And um, they're looking over some plans. It's going to be like a huge ordeal. And they're like, you know, they're drawing out the areas and they're like um, marking off enough room for fire safety. And Maurice is um, dictating like what he wants to see. And as he mentions something, the... um, the maestro will say to his assistant, okay, add like a bleep blopper, like whatever the name of the like <laughs> special, they have the special whirly do names for, um, for the different fireworks. Uh, but yeah, Maurice is like ready to have a great show where like, he's going to say, I don't even remember. He says something and it's going to cue like explosions or something like that. Right. Uh, one particular line really caught my attention. Uh, they, the fireworks people say like, hey, do you mind if we cut down some trees in this area? And mm. Murray says like, that's fine. That goes back to George Washington cutting down a cherry tree right here. And like you said, there was a lot of like technical jargon in this, uh, in this section. But I think that's important to note that like these people seem like they're professionals. Yeah. Like, they know what they're talking about. That Like either they they have very quick developmental skills on picking up different traits or they've been doing this in their, their entire life. Yeah. And we get uh, in this next scene or, you know, throughout this episode, we're going to question, Adam specifically is going to question uh, the the sort of background of these pyrotechnicians. Um, so the next scene is Adam in Maurice's house. Like Maurice arrives home late at night and Adam is already infiltrated. He's like sitting in Maurice's chair and gosh, you know, I forgot to look this up, but what was their last interaction? So I need to look up like, what was the last episode that Adam was in and what was the last interaction that Maurice and Adam had? Because it obviously wasn't a good one because they're like literally ready to like throw some fists at each other. Uh, I, I don't think I'm right, but is it the one where, um, Maurice has that fancy dinner party and Adam is the cook and then Adam like kind of takes over the the entire operation. That's probably it. But what, why, why was he so mad at the end? I think it all worked out in the end for them. I think he's mostly mad that he just snuck into his house. (laughs) Yeah, it was the big feast. I'm trying to remember like how exactly it ends in the big feast, but, um, this is like they definitely a, hate each other. <laughs> this is just like a little uh, aside, but like I, I don't understand how they picked photos for Wikipedia because when you look at Adam Arkins, it's from 1999. <laughs> like, yeah. what? How is that his, the most recent? <laughs> yeah, his IMDb is a little more recent looking. Um, but you know what kind of blew my mind? Either I knew this and it like completely escaped my memory, or I've never known this. Um, Adam Arkin's dad is Alan Arkin. Did we talk about this before? Okay, I'm an idiot. Who, who is Alan Arkin? Uh, click it on the Wikipedia page. You'll see. It's like, oh, it's the last <laughs> sentence of his like first paragraph for Adam Arkin. His father, Alan Arkin, and brother, Matthew, are also actors. Alan Arkin is in Glengarry Glen Ross. I'm trying to think of movies we've oh, watched together. this guy. Yeah. Yeah, he's got so much. He's in a lot oh of stuff. Yeah, Alan Arkin's kind of even more of an accomplished actor. 
Um, they're both fantastic, but I didn't know that, I don't think, or I must have forgotten, but that's crazy. I mean, they're basically the same name. Like, I remember whenever Alan Arkin's name would pop up in credits and I'd be like, oh, is that Adam from from Northern Exposure? I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. Wrong, wrong guy. Different Arkin. But they're related. Their father that and son. That is crazy. I think that is like, uh, some people like to argue nepotism, and I'm not saying that doesn't happen. It definitely happens. There's like all sorts of nepotisms happening in every field imaginable right there. But like Adam was a very talented actor, and his father is a very talented actor. They they definitely earned their spot. Yeah. Well, I mean, like the whole idea behind that is like they, he... He was offered he, opportunities yeah, more. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and have you seen that... Um, there's a new meme now. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where it's like, never ask, uh, let me figure this out. <laughs> never ask a woman her age, a man his salary, and why this actor has like a blue link or his parents have a blue link in his uh, Wikipedia bio. <laughs> have you seen that meme? No. <laughs> what? <laughs> that is hilarious. It's going around a lot. So basically insinuating that like if you have a, if you're, Parents in your Wikipedia bio have a blue link. It means that they're famous and probably, you know, you were born into wealth and what, yeah, nepotism. I, I get that. But like, yeah. we live in a world where like Clint Eastwood is offered a lot of roles and that guy is not a good actor. <laughs> so like, praise be that like Adam Arkin is at least extremely talented at what he does. Cl- Clint Eastwood is, I wouldn't say he's a bad actor, but he's a certain thing, you know, like. Oh, yeah, I'm I, sorry. I think let me, let me, oh, not, go ahead. Not Clint Eastwood. I'm so sorry. I misspoke. His son. What is his son's oh. name? I mean, yeah, let's look at that. That's That might be a, a nepotism. Oh, it's 100%. <laughs> I'm going to Clint Eastwood's Wikipedia and looking under Scott his Eastwood. Scott, Scott Eastwood. Let me look who this is. This has nothing to do with Northern Exposure, but I want to know. Hmm, yeah, I don't really recognize him, but I've probably seen him in a lot of stuff. Because I've seen a lot of these movies. Anyway, um... Adam, <laughs> Alan, Arkin. I'm, there's no way I'm going to forget that now. Um, so Adam is like infiltrated Maurice's house. He broke the security. I think it's funny. Like he, Maurice is like, how'd you get past my security system? And Adam like throws a, some sort of like circuitry and wires at him. Like he, you know, dismantled whatever security system he had. And he says like, next time, just get like a pack of geese. Why don't you like... <laughs> would be more effective than this crappy security system. And uh, I think that's actually kind of neat because <laughs> it also demonstrates that Adam kind of has some, uh, some like ethos behind his argument. That's the thing is like Adam is obviously like everyone treats him and is aware that he's like a pathological liar, but sometimes his lies are like, you know, he, he proves things to where it's like, wait, I guess that can't be a lie or it's, you're always in question to know like, is this guy's just making this up, right? And then something happens and you're like, whoa, I guess he wasn't making, he wasn't lying about that. Right. Uh, <laughs> he, he even like reveals further on true conspiracies or like things that like actually happen. So his major beef with Maurice <laughs> is that he's hired a couple of people that were involved with the Contras. Uh I knew about this vaguely, um, and I'm definitely going to give like a super brief explanation about this because this would take like, (laughs) you could teach like an entire class about this. But the Contras were this US-backed and funded rebel group that were super active in like 1979 until the 1990s. And they were in direct opposition against the Sandinista Junta of National Reconstruction Government in Nicaragua. 
and the United States was backing them because they didn't like what the Sandinistas were standing for. So during this time, we were in the Reagan administration in the U.S., and they were trying to get more weapons for the Contras, but legally they couldn't do it. They didn't like they couldn't transfer funds to them. So what they did was that they would sell some arms to the Khomeini. I'm probably definitely butchering that name. <laughs> they were selling them to a government in Iran, and they were using mm. those funds to go buy stuff for the Contras, which led to the Iran-Contra affair. That was totally illegal. You obviously cannot back that. And it was a whole entire thing of uh, the failure of the U.S. government and everything. And Adam is right in that the United States government was responsible for this failure in public trust. Yeah, that's a very good quick summation of what's going on here. And also like the episode somehow handles it uh, very well as well. Because there's like, that's, I, I, it's kind of hard to describe. I, I had to look at the uh, like Wikipedia entry for this episode to like really even understand like how to quickly summarize it. Uh, the, you know, the pyrotechnics company was an intelligence operative who betrayed a Contra guerrilla operation. Lots of... Lots of uh, sort of conspiracy words flying around and these like secretive military intelligence stuff. But I think it cuts through enough in the dialogue here that what's going on is this person, D'Angelo, Salvatore D'Angelo, the pyrotechnician, also had a lot of aliases. Let's see, he says, a.k.a. Dexter R. Ward, a.k.a. Carlo the Weasel Fusco. So... Whatever this guy is, he's Adam is claiming that he comes from a much more sinister, darker past. And I think it also turns out Adam says, like, if this guy were to find me, he would kill me instantly or something like that, right? Like, Adam's like, you brought this guy here to Sicily. He's going to find me and, and he's going to, like, track me down and try to kill me. Right. Uh, two things on this. Number yeah. one, there's no goddamn way that that guy's nickname was the Weasel. <laughs> <laughs> like you commit like terrorism and your nickname's the weasel. Like no, <laughs> maybe it sounds uh, worse in Spanish or something. I don't know. It's <laughs> <laughs> really silly. Um, number two, uh, Adam seems like he's really good at hiding. I mean, the townsfolk right. can't really find him that well. Whenever he wants to hide, he could just they leave don't have any, too. It's not yeah. like Adam was like going into town or anything. Like they have no reason to believe uh, these these fireworks salesmen. They they don't know of his existence. He might so like, just be like paranoid in that like as soon as he found out that they are in town, he thinks, okay, they must know I'm here already. And like I could leave, but they're probably already tracking me if they know I'm here. Stuff like that. Mm, I could see yeah. how his paranoid uh, spiral could go. But um, but yeah, I also, it's like, I think he still has time to just get out of there. If he's like, he doesn't have, he because his solution is he's more confrontational. He's like, I have to kill them now. Before they can kill me. <laughs> <laughs> what, what would you have done if he was wrong? Like, what would you like stand trial? It's like, I really thought he was the weasel, man. Like, I thought my life was in danger. Like, you just murdered like five innocent fireworks people. Um, I love the exit here that Adam has. He does this dramatic, like he throws the glass that he was drinking from and it shatters off screen. And he like, Adam runs out the front door you know, when he when he opens it to exit, the uh, lightning storm is still flashing outside, so it's very dramatic, and um, it's hilarious because Maurice 
runs up after him to go like close the door and lock it. He's like, all right, get out of my house. Like he locks the door. And then Maurice, after he finishes dead bolting the door, he turns around and he sort of shoots a glance off screen, uh, presumably to the busted glass on the floor. And he's just like, you know, he gives an expression that's like, what the hell? Like, he's just like, <laughs> what just happened? <laughs> yeah. We're, uh, we see him in the next morning in Joel's office where he's trying to get Adam institutionalized, which is yeah, like... Yeah, Maurice, right? Does, yeah. Yeah. Dude, does David Chase have something with like <laughs> psychiatric wards? Why, why does he keep invoking this? This is like the third time, right? Well, I don't know a whole lot about David Chase because I, I haven't uh, watched The Sopranos, which I think he's most known for. I've seen a couple episodes here or there, but that's enough to know that psychiatry, psychotherapy, and things like that, like those do feature heavily in Sopranos. Like a main character is Tony Soprano's therapist. So, so yeah, I think that is something probably we could attribute to a David Chase sort of vibe. Okay. Yeah. I was wondering what was going on there. Cause yeah. like, get, we just had that last episode, <laughs> but, but hang on. Now that I'm saying that out loud, that's kind of messed up. He's seen the horrors. He still wants to put Adam in there. Oh, yeah, because Maurice at the end of the last episode, maybe it was he he visited this guy that's in the psychiatric ward. And now he's requesting to he's requesting Joel to have Adam institutionalized. He's like, can't you like do some sort of evaluation and, and make sure that he's sent away? I think I think the idea is that um, if Joel can certify that Adam is a danger to himself or to other people, then apparently the police can hold him for 72 hours, which is enough to get him away from this like President's Day celebration. So, you know, Maurice just wants his fireworks to go off in the in the celebration to to happen, everything that he's planned and paid for. But yeah, this is definitely as Joel's perspective here in this scene, it's kind of some some drastic measures. I mean, Joel's argument first is like, you know, this guy, Adam is not known to ever really like hurt anybody. He may be a pathological liar, but he's never hurt anybody. Right. I think that's like, Joel's totally in the right. Like, it's yeah. just, what Maurice is uh, suggesting is incredibly He's just like bending the rules. Up. He wants to like bend the rules, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's just uh, essentially abusing his power as uh you know, a leader of the community right here. I like that Joel says um, about Adam, he says, threats of imminent danger are just his way of saying good morning. Like, you know, like, <laughs> he's got a lot of bark, but um, that's just him. Before the end of the scene, Maurice like goes on a rant as well about, um, you know, this is Sicily. This is in New York City where people are like rolling around their shopping carts and it's just mayhem or whatever. Yeah, it's suggesting that like this is a very special area that's clean and pristine, which, uh, you know, is false because <laughs> nowhere is. So yeah. I, I think that we're having this theme run throughout the episode of like, you know, pure unadulterated figures and what their actual past were. So I think that kind yeah, of plays in line George with Washington. Their, yeah, you're right. Uh, the next time that we're going to see Joel is that he's doing a kind of like a wellness check, I guess, on Adam. <laughs> he's trying to make sure that he's all right. I thought it was kind of smooth. I, I I didn't realize what he was doing, but he's trying to see if Adam knows which day it is by subtly guiding him, being like, is, is it like Monday or is it Tuesday? Oh, yeah. Joel's like, I, f I didn't write that down. And I actually, that went over my head too, because Joel's like, 
Oh, I'm sorry to barge in. Like I've, you know, uh, you know, I'm just like all over the place. Like earlier today, I was like, is this Monday? Is it Tuesday? Like I always forget the day. Doesn't he say, he says it like that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But it's, uh, I didn't think about that. You, <laughs> What you pointed out is he's like trying to coax Adam into <laughs> saying like what day it is to check his, check his wellness there. Right. I thought it was really smooth right there. And that's kind of like the wrong thing to Adam because immediately he can tell what he's trying to do. He knows that he's trying to get him diagnosed with something. He calls him a variety of words. He calls him Marcus Welby, like I mm-hmm. talked about earlier. He also calls him Il Dottori, which oh, yeah. that is a stock character from Commedia Del Art. Um, that's like a very, very old predecessor of like vaudeville performing arts uh, essentially what it was like this is like a very brief rundown but <laughs> it was something that was happening in italy where they would have these performances on the street and they would have all these different stock characters that these cast members would play and they perform sketches and sing and and play scenarios uh to all the people that wanted to come and watch it was I want to say like the first instance of slapstick comedy, or at least like that's where the term slapstick comes from. They would use like this Mm. uh, little device that you would slap and it would make a huge (laughs) noise. And it sounded like, you know, a huge impact right there. And Ildatory, which translates to the doctor, is one of the quote unquote old men stock characters their function in a scenario is to be an obstacle to the young lovers so it's always something that's stopping another individual that's what they always do uh it's comically and presumably like they make fun of him a lot or they're just like yeah shunned character absolutely they're usually always comically inept they're extremely rich (laughs) uh but They're very pompous and they love the sound of their own voice, constantly talking in Latin or Greek. And his interactions in the play is usually with Pantalone, who is another stock character. Pantalone, is that that the pants man or what's that? Is the. (laughs) Is it Pantalone or Pantalone? I don't know. I guess Dottore is what he said. So maybe it's Pantalone. uh, It's money. Oh, okay. Interesting. Pantalone. Or no, Pantalone. Pantalone. I don't know. <laughs> I I only know this because I'm trying to I'm trying to write a piece on Commedia dell'arte right now. Oh, I only know of Commedia dell'arte from or Commedia dell'arte from uh, Studio Six Studio Sixty when they mentioned that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a whole sort and of in, running uh, bit in one of the episodes. Bradley Woodford's character says that it doesn't have any. He he confuses it with Moliere and Matthew Perry's character mm-hmm. says like they, they have nothing alike, which he's actually wrong. Um, Moliere does derive. <laughs> A little bit from Commedia <laughs> del Art. He's right that are entirely different centuries and like, you know, different countries. Yeah. But yeah, he is incorrect in that regard. Anyway, back to Northern Exposure. <laughs> Adam immediately sees through what's happening and he tells Joel that like, you know, if I was actually prone to violence, I'd already attack you. Yeah, it's exactly. He's But he's like doing this. He grabs Joel's collar and pushes him out of the room in a way, very menacingly. But, you know, like he's not... He's not going to like gravely injure Joel. This is more of the bark than the bite, as we said before. I just thought it was really hilarious that he grabs Joel's collar and the way he pushes him out of the room, they kind of like, Joel kind of bumps into this hammock that's hung in the room. And it's really funny because Joel almost, it's like he almost gets caught in the hammock. (laughs) But uh, Joel's just like such a little vulnerable, vulnerable little guy. But yeah, he gets Joel out of that. Uh, I guess this is his shack where... 
Um, I always think of Adam as like when he's not in an episode, he's like overseas or like he's like somewhere else. Uh, but I wonder how much time he's just actually chilling in his shack. Cause he, you know, when we first meet him, he lives in this like shack, I guess, outside of Sicily. Yeah. I, <laughs> why is he not with his wife and child? That's also what's a little messed up. And, and uh, Joel brings it up. I think the first thing when he comes in, he's like, how's Eve? And what's your baby's name? Aldridge? Yeah. I actually forgot what is Adam's response. Like where, why isn't he with his wife and his newborn child? I don't know if he has a response. I know he says that like he deeply loves them, which I don't, I don't doubt. Oh, okay. I don't doubt that he loves them, but like maybe they're just off doing something. Maybe Eve's just doing Eve things. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but that's pretty much that scene. The only other thing we should clock before we leave is that Adam is like cleaning and working on a crossbow. Because I don't know, is it the next scene? It definitely comes up later with this crossbow. Yeah, but it's the next scene. Oh, it is the next scene. Um, somebody has tampered with the fireworks. Like um, D'Angelo and his assistant are like, we're leaving. They show Maurice like basically sabotage. Like all their stuff has been ruined. And Maurice is like, well, you're professionals. Don't you bring backup stuff for things like this? I don't think they respond, but my perspective is like, I think Adam just like destroyed everything. Like he probably ruined everything for this fireworks show. And the the real sort of um, indicator that this is Adam's wrongdoing is because there's like a, there's a crossbow bolt in the door of the, the pyrotechnician's truck. Um, and it's like, we literally just saw that in the last scene with Adam. So yeah, I mean, that's pretty much that scene. I want to pitch it to you, Charles. The next scene, Maurice is coming to basically, I guess, to sue Adam or something. Yeah. He wants to press like legal actions against him for stopping this, which I guess he has grounds for if you get like hundred percent proved it was Adam right there. But yeah. I thought Adam was going to deny. I thought he was going to be like, how do you know it was me? But like, he comes up front. <laughs> He's like, no, I saved Sicily from like this, uh, <laughs> y- you know, this uh, terrible uh, terrorist organization right here. And he says that he's going to replace the fireworks. He says that he'll do it himself. Yeah, he says, don't worry, I'll take care of it. And he's like, what? He's like, yeah. Like, we understand that Adam's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take care of the fireworks show. And Maurice is still, you know, pretty, pretty mad. I don't think he's going to take that as an answer. And I think he also just doesn't believe what Adam's telling him. I, I like And it that, is a though. surprise later. I, oh, go ahead. I, yeah. I like that though. Like, it's weird. It's kind of like in his character, but it's like a rare side of his character where he takes responsibility. Because Adam knows that he yeah. just ruined the fireworks festival doing this. And to make it up to Maurice, he says like, I'll do it myself for you. He says it in a gruff manner, but he still takes responsibility for his actions, which I I like that about his character. Yeah. And it just shows us that Adam is not doing whatever this, whatever crazy solution he came up with here is not to anger Maurice. Like he, I guess if we're to believe like Adam was really concerned for his safety, he had to get that taken care of first. And then now he's like, all right, well, don't worry. Like, I'll hook you up, Maurice. Like, we'll figure this out. But <laughs> obviously, he doesn't say it like that because he's Adam. But <laughs> it's pretty cool. You're right. Uh, oh, sorry. Wait, I wrote I wrote down, before we leave that scene, um, Maurice is 
In disbelief that Adam can put together a fireworks show, Adam says, does the name Nishiyama mean anything to you? And uh, of course, Adam tells a story that he is like the only white person that um, has entered into the Nishiyama factory, which they're like this this, uh, family that has been making fireworks for centuries or something like that. So Adam apparently knows what he's talking about. Um, but anyway, that's basically the end of that scene. Maurice is still wants to bring some charges against Adam. He, uh, angrily stores out of Adam's shack. The next scene I'm guessing is we kind of talked about it when Adam gives this grim, um, depiction, this grim philosophy to Ed, but he's also, you know, the reason why he's talking to Ed in the first place is because he's at Ruth Ann's store to buy supplies for fireworks and this is, again, like the the previous episode we just talked about, Charles, where this crazed violinist is trying to buy uh, dynamite. And when when he realizes that it's illegal, like Ruth Ann can't sell him dynamite. Instead, he just like gets all the components to build a pipe bomb. Uh, in this episode, Adam is somehow magically trying to make a fireworks show out of supplies from Ruth Ann's store. Of course, she doesn't have like a fireworks show in her store. Like, this is crazy. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I guess evidently she does. Somehow like she has the materials together. Yeah, I don't know if it's all sourced from Ruthann or, or elsewhere, but this is the only time on screen where we see him, like, preparing for this uh, fireworks show. <laughs> right. And I think that, you know, the scene serves to demonstrate, like we talked about, well, like, Ed is struggling on what to choose, and uh, Adam comes in and delivers, like, a blunt reality to him. And we can see that Adam's character throughout this entire episode is really laden with conspiracies or like just an uh, alternate view, seeing how things are and what they aren't. You're not entirely too sure which things are true and which things are false. Things that you used to believe that were really solid turned out to be very flimsy and then vice versa. And I think all of this comes to a head at the final fireworks scene with Maurice, where he's talking about the first annual President's Day celebration, and he's about to go into the spiel about Americans fighting against Russia in the Cold War and how they were a dominant powerhouse. <laughs> but then even he gives up. He's like, I don't, I don't even want to talk about that anymore. Yeah, because, um, well, sorry, did, did you say Maurice, like, he basically leads off his speech by there will be no fireworks tonight. And everyone's just like, ah, <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, immediately they're disappointed that there's not going to be what they showed up for this spectacular fashion, kind of like representing like their hopes of what they want things to turn out to be. And Maurice goes down a more morose path. He starts talking about Washington and Lincoln's failures <laughs> and all the demons that consumed them. And you think that he's going to completely go down there, but then the fireworks start and stops him in his path. And they light up the sky and everyone's impressed and everyone's looking at all at these fireworks. I can't help but be reminded of that beginning soundbite that we used where Joel says, I just think that people don't always want to know that stuff, you know? Not all at once, in a way. And I think that it's kind of finding the middle ground of seeing the truth and kind of letting things lie, uh, or or at least like not even taking the conspiracies at face value, just like you shouldn't take the other fact at face value. Probably some grays in between. Yeah, it's a... 
I, I think I see what you're getting at, but yeah, it's a nice, like there is room for fiction and this sounds kind of crazy, but yeah, you know, there are, there are facts and there are stories and there, are, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know how to, what you're touching on is something that's kind of really resonating with me, but it's, it doesn't seem to make factual sense for me to explain. Yeah. It's kind of hard for me to kind of express my views on this because I don't know, I, I'm less I'm I'm gonna be like really against Adam's side of looking at things because <laughs> you know we're we're living in 2022 where we're like designed to kind of like have a pushback amongst some people against conspiracy theories because of like how much yeah. they could rot havoc on our lives. So naturally, the individual that I am, I'm I want to push back against Adam and be like, you're you're you might be saying some dangerous stuff and you don't know the ramifications of your words. But I also think it's really interesting that. We don't know if Adam was correct about those fireworks people because yeah. they left for good reason. They just had a crossbow <laughs> fired on them. So we don't even know if ultimately he was right or if he was also just being, you know, crazy. Yeah, that's like a, you wouldn't necessarily see a connection between this and that opening soundbite. But I think they're really, you know, it's kind of on a whole other different harmony with that. But it's, I think that's definitely a good, um, good thing to point out. And we see that, as you just said, with Maurice sort of starting to talk about, you know, the, the failures of Washington, but then interrupted by this wonderful fireworks. Oh, well, like one last thing about this. Mm -hmm. I, I find it really interesting that Ruth Ann is commenting yeah. about the fireworks. <laughs> she says like, oh, it's really dangerous. Like any of the sparks could lead to a forest fire. And I think if we overanalyze this a little bit, I think that we might be able to find some sort of like meaning to go along with what we've been talking about. Well, Ed does, you know, there's a Ed, Ed response to her. What does that say again? I'm, it's been a while. So she says one spark could set something on fire. That would be a catastrophe. And Ed says, maybe like, cause that's like from the story. Oh, that, yeah. But no, no, but do continue because I do want to talk good. more. I do want to talk more <laughs> about this. Um, but do continue with what you're... I think that's a really... That's a good line from Ed. And in it's fact, a, I'm probably more in the camp that like that one's probably the more correct interpretation oh, okay. of what I'm about to go into. I was just going to say that like they talked about fire towers being very obsolete in the beginning of the episode mm -hmm. and how like that... Yeah. The once noble fire tower that we have this view of is gone. Like you don't need it anymore or that it's obsolete, this viewpoint. And... Now we see that the fire tower would be super important at this moment. <laughs> yeah. It could see all the sparks that would cause the forest fire. It would be able to identify where it's happening. So there's a return back to form of saying like, this old thing is actually really valuable. So like in a way, the myth of George Washington cutting down the cherry tree or all of his other accomplishments, they, they kind of have purpose and can actually be beneficial uh, for other people to look at. Yeah, it's sort of inspiring something. And you're right. It's like, I didn't think about that, but that idea that this fireworks could start a fire and it would be a catastrophe is a nice little bookend at the end of the episode, reminding us the beginning of the episode, like Ranger Burns, like his whole, what his whole life was before, you know, the start of this episode. Um, but I did want to focus on, you know, 
I was just caught a little bit by surprise. Well, I know why. I, I wrote down, now, now, why did Ruth Ann have to say that? Like, this is such a wonderful moment. And she's like <laughs> such a downer. And of course, she only says that because it's so Ed can have his response with, you know, to show that he's taken this perspective from Marilyn, from this story. But I was like, come on. Like, everyone is really, even... Um, I love that Maurice is just like really happy now too. Cause he was so mad at Adam earlier and kind of like, didn't, didn't trust Adam that this could ever be a thing. It's just really nice to see that it all worked out for Maurice. Everyone's having a good time. Uh, you know, Ranger Burns, Joel, but of course, Ruthann has to be a downer. <laughs> it's like, what? Um, do you recognize the music playing in this in this scene? No. What what is this? This is a song called "Rock and Roll Part 2 by Gary Glitter. Um, most recently, it was featured in the Joaquin Phoenix Joker movie, like when he's doing the uh, doing oh, the dance really? down the steps. I, I, I didn't I didn't see that movie. <laughs> yeah, so maybe me, me, that's why I didn't realize it. Me neither. Maybe it's uh, just into the trailer, or maybe it's I've just heard about that sequence. But I'm pretty sure, like the Joe, you know, the Joker dance where he's like walking down the stairs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I just, I wrote down in my notes like this is like Maurice walking down the steps, like doing the Joker dance. Or no, Adam, <laughs> Adam comes down at the end and he's like doing the Joker dance to this music. <laughs> um, of course, the DVDs sub out this song with um, some Muzak version. But you know, if you take if you listen to the the song. Uh, Rock and Roll Part 2, it's pretty minimal. Like, it's just a guitar riff with, like, pretty simple bass and snare drums, you know? So the the Muzak version on the DVD, while it's not that original song, it's basically, it's very, very similar. It's just like a cheesy, almost sounds like a karaoke synthesizer version of that song. Basically the same thing, but sort of a ripoff. Speaking of music in this episode... Um, I forgot to mention in the in the scene when Ed is really depressed in his uh, apartment or his like little in his little room, and Chris comes to visit him and they talk about Gaia, Mother Earth. The music that's playing is a song by Julie Cruz called "This Is Our Night." I'm not super familiar with Julie Cruz's music, but of course she is uh, known for her work with Angela Badalamenti and David Lynch in Twin Peaks and another other David Lynch uh, works. So you may recognize the voice there if you listen to the, the song in, in that scene. Okay, so now's the time in our podcast where we typically will invite on a guest. It's someone who has never seen the show before usually, and we like to get the outside perspective, uh, hear their thoughts on the episode as it stands on its own, and then Charles and I will respond to their commentary. Only this time uh, today, at, at the time of recording this section. Charles is out sick. He's not feeling so good. So I'm going solo for this one. Hoping Charles gets well soon. And we'll see you back next episode, Charles. But to finish out this episode, we've got today's guest, Kevin McGrath. Kevin is a grandfather and a very talented actor. I probably met him in film school, but I've definitely worked with him a number of times since then. And he's always been a real pleasure to work with. Really talented guy. And when I approached him about being a guest on this podcast, he'd mentioned that he'd seen the show before, I mean, when it was airing, but I don't think he really followed it closely. Well, let's see what he thought about this episode. Fellas, hey there, Kevin McGrath here, and uh, thanks for inviting me uh, to watch the show. Um, I really enjoyed it. I can uh, 
remember watching it uh, back in the day when it was on and enjoyed it then, just didn't watch it regularly or anything really because I was starting out careers and kids and all that stuff. But uh, so I, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the pace of the uh, show and, you know, kind of wish things were paced like that these days. But so it's like three storylines, I guess, with uh, first of all, Ed gets struck by lightning and, you know, it causes him to uh, wonder about his place in the world like a youngster his age would. And uh, that was very cool. And uh, that actor, I, I didn't look him up, but yeah, he, he's gone on to play some. He's a great, creepy, bad guy. And then, of course, the fireworks show and uh, with the combined, I guess that had happened kind of recently, uh, Washington and Lincoln, now just one birthday, you know, because uh, just to make it easy and have a nice long three-day shopping uh, weekend. And then the uh, the fireworks guy, I guess he's the mayor, but, uh, and then Adam Arkin's character, who uh, uh, I love, you know, the whatever he is, psychotic, PTSD, who knows, right? He's uh, telling the truth or he's making it all up, whatever, he made things happen. And uh, it's just very entertaining. I think uh, it's a classic formula, the show, you know, uh, as far as comedy, you got your town, you got your quirky, the quirky inhabitants and how they interact. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry, the guy in, in the fire tower. And no one, it was a perfect job for him. I don't know why. <laughs> He's a little short on social skills. And that all worked out uh, all right. But uh, it was very enjoyable. And uh, it just makes me think they took all these scripts, storylines, and uh, 10, 15 years later, and just put them in New England and, uh, you know, made the Gilmore Girls. They just uh, tripled the speed of the dialogue. So anyway, I, I really enjoyed it. And uh, thanks for uh, turning me on to and helping me remember it. It was very good. As far as uh, being in a situation that I thought really stunk and turned out okay is, here's my one story. It's happened to me a few times in my life. But uh, so I'm 18 and this uh, childhood friend, I let him talk me into joining the Air Force. I had nothing else going on. I can't blame him for signing on the dotted line, but they had a, a buddy system back then. So, you know, you and a buddy could join up and go to boot camp together and go to the same training and, you know, be together in your uh, service time. Well, you know, day one at uh, boot camp, my friend uh, decided he made a mistake and did not want to do this. And by day 13, he had uh, acted so successfully that they put him out on a uh, mental discharge. He faked being crazy and got out, uh, leaving me there. Day 13, I still remember a boot camp. I didn't want to be there. It was not my cup of tea. But, uh, turns out uh, it actually was a, a pretty good experience. It was good for me, of course. Got to do the traveling. I got to fly around in helicopters, make some good friends, and help me figure out what I wanted to do with my life. So anyway, it turned out fine. However, I have never talked to that old friend, quote unquote, ever since. So, all right, guys, thank you very much. And uh, good luck with all your stuff. See ya. Bye. So that was Kevin's thoughts on the episode. He said up front that he really enjoyed the pace of the show and that he misses 
that type of pacing. I don't know if he's referring to that type of pacing in television, because it definitely feels a little different being a show from the 90s, or if he's referring to just that type of pacing in life, maybe a more slow, down to earth. I mean, you know, the setting here in Northern Exposure, Sicily, Alaska, is supposed to be very foreign from uh, the hustle and bustle of the city life. Not saying that Kevin or I live in a, in a huge city or anything like that, but, you know, compared to the slow pace of life here in Sicily, maybe it's a bit different. He points out also that he really liked um, the character Ed and the actor Darren Burroughs, who plays Ed. He said uh, <laughs> Darren Burroughs go has gone on to play some great creepy bad guys. I'm not sure if he's referring to Darren Burroughs or maybe confusing him with Darren's father, William Eugene Burroughs, a.k.a. Billy Drago. Um, Billy Drago was uh, also an actor, and he was often cast as uh, villains, famously in Clint Eastwood's movie Pale Rider and then uh, Brian De Palma's The Untouchables. But he has, um, he has many film credits and TV credits, I think a lot more than Darren Burroughs. Now, Darren did uh, go on to do some acting after Northern Exposure, of course, um, and it's possible that he played some villains as well. I mean, he does, you should look up uh, Billy Drago. They look very similar. So Darren definitely takes after his father. Kevin assumes that the Maurice character is like the mayor type. This is the guy who's putting on the fireworks show. And I mean, it's not a bad assumption. He's practically, I mean, for all intents and purposes, he's the person who tries to affect the most infrastructural change, I guess, in Sicily. But there are episodes in this uh, series where we find out who the actual mayor is. Like, it turns out, I think, Holling is the mayor of Sicily, and he has been for a long time, until there's an episode where they have, um, they vote on who should be mayor, and Holling is bested. So there is a mayor, however, we don't see her past that episode where she's elected mayor. Um, I wish she would come back. We're in season five now, so maybe she'll make another appearance before the end of the series, but I'm not so sure. Kevin also points out the actor Adam Arkin, who we talked a lot about uh, earlier in the episode. Great character, great actor, and um, yeah, psychotic PTSD, who knows, says Kevin. Uh, Kevin, when Adam Arkin's character, Adam, is introduced in Northern Exposure, he's introduced as the Bigfoot of Sicily. Like people think Adam is uh, the missing link. So he's a very mysterious character at first, but obviously at this point in the series, the townsfolk have come to, you know, actually meet this person and realize he's not Bigfoot. He's just you know, this crazy man. Kevin compares the writing in this series uh, to Gilmore Girls. He says he could take these scripts and 10 to 15 years later, put them in New England and make the show Gilmore Girls. Obviously that show has a, a much uh, busier, sort of um, quippier form of dialogue, but I guess I could see some comparisons there to like just a quirky small town which is a, a big attribute in Northern Exposure and I guess also in Gilmore Girls. I'd be curious to hear Charles's thoughts here as like the resident Gilmore Girls fan. Though I guess, I mean, after after quarantine, I watched all of Gilmore Girls through quarantine. Uh, maybe I wasn't paying attention the whole time, but uh, definitely enjoyed watching that series. Okay, Kevin finishes up with an anecdote. We asked him the question, have you ever been stuck in a place that... Maybe you, um, you didn't want to be there, but ultimately learned from the experience. And he was talked into joining the Air Force by his friend, 
Uh, there's was a buddy system, apparently. They were supposed to go in together, get trained together, and his friend backed out. Uh, faking insanity. I thought that was, that was very interesting. But hey, um, yeah, it sounded like it was probably a rough, a rough time in boot camp. But I guess the moral of the story to Kevin is he got to do a lot of things that he would never have the opportunity to. And it was a formative experience for him. He got to figure out for himself what he should be doing in his life. And um, yeah, I mean, I'm speaking for Charles because he's not here, but he would say there is no such thing as wasted effort. Everything that happens to you in life and everything that you do, whether you could see it as a failure or not, it builds on the present. And it's put you here, Kevin. And thanks for you know sharing that story with us. Thanks so much for watching this episode and taking the time to record your thoughts on the episode. Glad you liked it. And um, we'll have to get you back on the podcast sometime in the future. Thanks again. All right, so next week, Charles and I will be back to discuss the 15th episode in season five. It's called Hello, I Love You. Charles, get well soon. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by me. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Laser Kitties for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Kevin for being our guest. If you'd like to write in, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com, at northernoverpod on Twitter. And if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash northernoverexposurepodcast. And of course, thank you for listening. All right, if you're still listening, I've got some bonus content here at the end. There are some deleted scenes in this episode that I wanted to cover. The first is a scene with Szymanski and Joel. This would uh, precede the opening of the episode. She talks with them a little bit before they go to meet Ranger Burns and even offers him a gun for protection, which Joel turns down. I think Maggie is in the office as well, and she um, suggests that Joel take uh, the Magnum. But... um. As we know, he goes in uh, unarmed. There's another scene with Ed and Shelly, and Shelly talks about this old uh, punk rocker that she used to know who got an electric shock from an amplifier, uh, which is uh, similar to Ed's situation, but, but much different, it turns out. And the most important deleted scene, in my opinion, is one between Maurice and Adam. Maurice finds Adam in a burnt down, I guess it's his shack, maybe? Uh, this is when Adam has said that he's going to put on the fireworks show. Uh, because the original, what is it, um, Salvatore D'Angelo has fled town now, has has dropped the job. So Adam has the duty now to put on this fireworks show. And as it turns out, it seems like he's burned down his shack or he's burned down some structure. And I'll just play the sound from this scene because it reveals uh, some backstory for Maurice, which I guess is not important to the series. But if Adam is correct... This seems to tell about a very important moment in Maurice's time uh, serving in combat. What the hell happened? I can see the flames from my front porch. A minor glitch. A glitch? You could have caused a forest fire. Well, this is what comes from uh, inferior materials. Oh, good Lord. Well, the show will go on, Minifield. Listen, Adam, admit it. You're in dire need of help. You're no more an expert in fireworks than you're an ex-contra leader or the Lone Ranger. As a comrade in arms, I sympathize with your plight. If you'll just sign the papers, I'll fly you down to Anchorage. What is it about me that scares you, Minifield? Scares me? Yeah, what is it? it take you a little too close to the edge? Back to that, uh, that nightmare in Korea? 
Those 10 days in that psych ward. What the hell do you know about that? Combat fatigue. That, that was the, the diagnosis, wasn't it? That was all classified. Yeah, but you're always wondering, aren't you? If maybe that little cuckoo clock is still ticking inside your head, waiting to go off. And maybe one morning you're gonna wake up again like you did in Pusan with a 50 caliber machine gun in your hands, ranting incoherently for your Springer Spaniel, Bucky. <laughs> I don't know where you got this crap, but it's all wrong. Do you remember a, uh, a mercury candidate named Millstone? Joe Millstone, Navy flyer. He was one of ours. Hooked up with him again uh, years later in Langley. So uh, collating transmissions from Swaziland. You were with the CIA and you were spying on NASA. Well, it was the Cold War, Minifield. There were leaks everywhere. No, I, I can't listen to any more of this. You, you go ahead and sink in the abyss of your twisted psyche, Adam. I, I tried to throw you a lifeline and you didn't want it, so it's a waste of a very talented chef, but, but fi fine. <laughs> I wash my hands of it. I'm done. <laughs> Over. <laughs> All right, that's all for this episode. Thanks for listening.